Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. This is Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast, where we tell stories about the contribution Iowans and the state of Iowa has made to advance the civil rights movement. Past stories are being told, present actions will be highlighted, and preparation for the future will be discussed. Here is your host, Eric Nyange. Welcome to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. Our conversation today is on Alexander G. Clark, born on February 25, 1826 in Washington County, Pennsylvania. Moved to Bloomington, Iowa. Today we know it as Muscatine, Iowa in 1842 at the age of 16. He's arguably the most influential black man ever lived in the state of Iowa in the 19th century. Did more to advance the civil rights movement at his time than anyone in the great state of Iowa, from voting rights to education rights to the Underground Railroad activities. He did all that and more right here in the great city of Muscatine, Iowa, where Alexander called it home for over 40 years. To trace the path of the great Alexander Clark and his contribution to the civil rights in this state, I came to Muscatine, Iowa to talk to the finest historian (laughs) of Alexander Clark, none other than Muscatine finest, Dan Clark. Welcome to Muscatine, Eric. Thank you very much. Welcome to the show, man. I have listened to some of your podcasts and I look forward to hearing more. I I love what you're doing with this initiative. Thank you. You guys in Muscatine has been great to me since I got here. I really appreciate it. It didn't hurt that you had had our mayor sending us all email (laughs) suggesting we cooperate with you. So yeah, it could be the mayor did a little bit twisting there, <laughs> but still, I really, I really appreciate that. I mean, uh, it's incredible. And by the way, we are sitting right outside Mr. Dan Clark's house. Let me, I guess, let me start it off with, uh, you were not born and raised in Muscatine. No, I came to Muscatine in my early thirties, uh, about 40 years ago. Okay. What brought you to Muscatine? I, I came to work at the Stanley Foundation, a nonprofit organization that works in international affairs around the world and uh, particularly around the United Nations these days has been renamed the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. Still based in Muscatine, still very active around the world. Okay. Alexander G. Clark. If somebody don't know anything about Alexander Clark and he asks you or she asks you, who is Alexander Clark? What would be your response? How do you describe him? I would say he was a resident of my town for nearly half a century, and he was a black man at a time when there were very few black people in Iowa, and uh, he, was, uh, he never lived in slavery. He was really a champion for equal rights for all people, mm. starting with his own community, for which he was absolutely a champion. Uh, he was a pioneer in integrating public education in the state of Iowa and setting a precedent that was acknowledged in, 18, in 19, 1954 in the Supreme Court Brown yeah, versus Board decision. It, it, the history of Alexander Clark is a remarkable one, not just in Iowa, but in the country. In the country. And, uh, or, and abroad. Arguably, he's probably the most influential black man in the history of Iowa. So far, I've not found any other name that has done as much as Alexander Clark in Iowa. Constitutional historian Paul Finkelman, who's one of the Alexander Clark scholars we rely upon, likes to say that Alexander Clark was the most important black man, black man in 19th century America mm. nobody's ever heard of. 
Mm. He was a friend of Frederick Douglass. He was acquainted with Frederick Douglass from, uh, for over 40 years. Alexander Clark turned down an ambassadorial appointment to Haiti in the 1872. President Grant offered this, and reputedly Alexander Clark said, oh, it doesn't pay enough. When Frederick Douglass accepted the ambassadorial appointment to Haiti from President Benjamin Harrison in 1889 or 90, his friend Alexander Clark said, yeah, maybe I'd take one of those. Mm. And he accepted the appointment. He, he sought and attained yeah. the appointment to Liberia, where, mm. where his life ended. Alexander Clark gained the nickname, at least in this part of the country, as the colored orator of the West. Interesting. Douglas was number one, but yeah. we, claim, we claim to have Alexander number Clark two. number two. <laughs> right from Muscatine, baby. <laughs> What does G stand for with the Mr. Alexander Clark? The G and the G and Alexander Sr. We're not sure, and actually, there's not a lot of evidence. It it was used in his time with his name, but there's not a lot of evidence that he used the middle initial. His son was Alexander G. Clark Jr. Mm-hmm. The G stood for Griffin, which was his mother's maiden name. Maiden name, yeah. They did call him Junior. Mm-hmm. Another possibility is that Alexander Sr., part, part of his upbringing was uh, living in Cincinnati, Ohio, with his uncle, whose name was George, mm. his mother's brother. Mm. Could be another place G comes from, but we don't know. Okay. And let me mention, too, about the uncle in Ohio. That uncle was active in the Black Masonic movement yeah. in this country at a time when they weren't able to be part of the White Masonic movement. A movement called the Prince Hall Masons, that uncle, George Darns, uh, received the authority in Pittsburgh to start that movement in Ohio. It spread from there to Chicago and other places. And I know I'm jumping ahead of the story, but young Alexander then was given authority to bring that west of the Mississippi to Iowa and and eventually became a very important figure in that movement. Uh, can we clear something out quick that you and Alexander Clark may have some relationship You've already heard that I love claiming the uh, <laughs> the title brother by another mother. <laughs> In the early days of my involvement with this topic, when I started writing and publishing on the Internet, I was getting uh, inquiries from around the country. And one of my favorites came from, I believe it was the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AM, historic AME I might be mistaken, but for sure it was a black church publication. I was addressed as Dear Brother Clark. It was clear from the message the assumption was that I must be some kind of descendant. Descendant of <laughs> <laughs> I know, because the first time when I saw that and I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a relationship there. I'll claim it. When and how did you come across and start developing interest on Alexander Clark? How well, I that- mentioned I was I was working there at the Stanley Foundation and... My work uh, often involved bringing speakers on world affairs to this part of the country. I was making arrangements for a man from Washington, D.C., who was going to spend some days in Iowa on a speaking tour. He was going to have a night or two in Muscatine. One of my co-workers at the foundation said, well, you know, Kent Sissel up the street is trying to do a bed and breakfast at, uh, at that old ambassador's house. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know anything about Kent Sissel. 
when I got acquainted with Kent and learned that this ambassador's house where Kent lived was a, a fine brick federal-style double house built 1878. Kent took over in about 1978, about 100 years Ooh. later. This is after the house had been saved from demolition, came very close to demolition. The house as it stands today is about 200 feet up West 3rd Street from the 3rd and Chestnut intersection where it was constructed. It was constructed on the site of the original wood frame house that Alexander bought in 1848, uh, around the time he married his wife Catherine, 1849. That house was run down. There were people who said, uh, that's nothing special. Tear it down, build something else there. And the city of Muscatine had decided that was the perfect central location for a senior citizen high-rise to be constructed, funded by HUD, Housing Urban Development. The paperwork was all done. The documents were signed. They were ready to go. There was a woman's study group that was beginning to explore the idea of historic preservation in Muscatine, documenting some of the old houses and commercial buildings. The State Historical Society of Iowa got Kent Sissel, who was a Muscatine native, to come back to town, take a little tour with this group of women. They pointed out that site as uh, the ambassador's home. Nobody was real clear who, who was that ambassador. We don't know exactly, but that's a how we, we better look into that. And uh, very late in the game, a group was formed to try to save the house. City Council was actually within, there was a 30-day demolition order at one point. They were that close. Mm. Uh, there was political involvement. United States Senator John Culver uh, intervened to ask the mayor of Muscatine to give some more time for documentation and fundraising related to this house. Yeah. And the solution eventually was that the house got moved. And the 10-story sen senior citizen high-rise that's there today was named the Clark House okay. Apartments. Okay. Very few people know that Clark House means the site of Alexander Clark's house. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Wow. Now, this guy was born in 1826 in uh, Washington County. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. He was born a free black man. His parents had been freed by their master, or at least his father's master, who is reputed to have, we haven't found for sure who that man was, but he's, uh, his name was John Clark. Or, I'm sorry, Alexander's father's name was John, John Clark. Clark. Yeah. And uh, the grandfather was reputed to be an Irishman. Now, given the settlement of Washington County, Pennsylvania, which is mostly Scots-Irish, it's more likely that was Scottish. Oh, his, his grandfather? Yeah. Okay. If anybody cares. Huh. He moved from Washington County to Cincinnati, Ohio? Yes. At age of 13? 13, 14, 13. yeah. I mean, at age 13, whatever, 13, 14, it's... Pretty young age. Why did he move from Pennsylvania to Cincinnati, Ohio? Do we know? We don't know for sure, but we've learned that this is a family that highly valued education. The parents in Washington County were involved in the education of young people there. And moving to Cincinnati was a chance to learn the barbering trade, which was an important skill, skill at yeah. that, at that yeah. time. Barbers were at the center of their community. Yeah, I was watching that PBS documentary you guys did on uh, on Alexander Clark. Talk a little bit about that barbering skill back then. So it was dangerous to cut your own hair? Well, if, if you've seen a razor strop, which is used to sharpen a razor blade, a razor blade is like a switchblade knife. Ooh. Not just anybody can handle that, and you probably didn't want to use it on yourself. On yourself, yeah. So a barber, if you could, if you could afford it, 
a shave, maybe not every day, but every every couple of days you go to the barber. Mm-hmm. That's not just what any man does. And uh, that was one profession that I don't know that black men particularly excelled at barbering, but they specialized in it. It was one trade that was often open, and it was entree into the into the wider community. Men of all classes probably came to them, but in particular, the well-to-do, the leaders of the community, the people who made plans, investments, and he would have been a trusted listener to a lot of those conversations. When did he move from Cincinnati to Muscatine? He left Cincinnati evidently about 1840, around age 14, and served as a, well, we don't know exactly what position, but uh, had a staff position aboard a, a riverboat on the Ohio River. And, and I don't know that he was always on the same boat, but he was on a boat called the George Washington, plying the Ohio River with passengers, evidently became acquainted with the Mississippi also. And then, so it was 1842 that he arrived that's, in Muscatine. That's when he Age arrived. 16. And by 1848, he has acquired, amassed enough wealth, apparently by selling vegetables and and selling timber, firewood, to the riverboats, that he was able to buy a fine house at a central location. And marry, marry a woman who grew up in slavery. Mm. I'm going to say they got married in 1848, but a lot of things happened around then. He he got involved with his first legal case involving a runaway slave, or these days we say freedom seekers. Mm Mm-hmm. Alexander Clark publicly defended him, provided hospitality, let him stay in his house. Here's this young man who's come to town and got the wherewithal and the, evidently the connections and the courage from somewhere mm-hmm. to be publicly identified with a runaway slave, to get married, and to buy a house all about the same time. Yeah. And not only that, by the way, but also with one other partner to buy a lot, to build a church building, to create the first African Methodist Episcopal Church west of the Mississippi River. Yeah, so now he moved in town in 1842 as a young man, 16. Six years later, he's doing all this stuff. Yeah, I'm assuming when he moved here to Muscatine, he was cutting hair. That's, that was It his, was the trade he'd learned, for sure. Okay, so that was his main trade. And was until about 1868, I believe, although by then he already had had at least one assistant, maybe more, and uh, he turned over the business to a man who married his elder daughter. Mm. So when, when did he buy his first home? Was that 1849? That's the first house we know about him buying. He, he, owned, uh, he invested in real estate, uh, owned a number of properties. We haven't done the research to know what all. Let me, let me back up just a second, a little bit more about the church. The pastor was an important figure in the black community always. Oh, yeah. So as we find news reports, we often find the name of the pastor or we find that the pastor was asked to pray or to lead some gathering. He was always the Sunday school superintendent. Who, Alexander Clark? Alexander Clark was. Oh, okay. This man wore a lot of hats. Uh, sometimes he was the treasurer. He was the largest financial supporter, probably always. He was involved in recruiting pastors. Wow. He may have been involved in letting them go, too. I don't know about yeah. that part. There were a number of pastors who played important roles here, no particular one staying all that long. But one of them in particular, we like to point out, in 1857, around the time of the Dred Scott decision, by the way, there was a young Methodist, or then AME, who'd started out as Methodist, pastor named Richard Harvey Kane. Richard Harvey Kane became really famous later on. He had the nickname Big Daddy Kane. Mm. He'd been an AME pastor 
in Ohio and Brooklyn, New York, and eventually Charleston, South Carolina. Everybody these days has heard of Mother Emanuel Church, AME Church, in Charleston, South Carolina, where we saw a massacre of people at a prayer meeting where President Obama led in singing Amazing Grace. That was Pastor Kane's church. Oh, really? Pastor Kane was also the only black member of Congress in the Reconstruction period to serve two terms. And you can find it in the biography, in some of the biographies, but not all of them, that he was a young pastor in Muscatine, Iowa. Wow. In cahoots with Alexander Clark. Wow. So he was well connected. Or maybe, or, or maybe people like Pastor Kane did a lot that we don't know about to influence who Alexander Clark became. Interesting. Why did Alexander Clark pick Muscatine, Iowa? Why Muscatine? Clearly, he knew the river. Muscatine may have looked like a place with prospects. Each of those river towns in the beginning were claiming that they were going to become the queen city of the West. Mm. Muscatine made some of those claims. Muscatine was a pretty attractive place. Uh, One reason people came here was that there was a military tract on the Illinois side that had its northern border uh, and east-west line pretty much across the river from here. There was a military road to the other side of the river at this point. Settlers coming west could go pretty far west at this point. You know, Davenport's about 30 miles east of here. The Mississippi River flows from east to west and turns south at Muscatine. So that was considered one of the advantages of Muscatine. You get that much farther west into the new territory that was opening to settlement. The settlement started uh, immediately following the Black Hawk War, so-called war, the Black Hawk Treaty that allowed settlers in for the first time. Yeah. Got, got married in 1848, started having children. His first kid. 1849. 1849. Rebecca. Then, then two babies died. Oh, then, so Rebecca was the first one. Rebecca was the first one. Okay. 1849. Uh, daughter Susan is December 1854. Isn't the one we hear about in a famous lawsuit. And, and then Alexander right. Jr. Alexander Jr. Who, who goes on to become the first graduate of the University of Iowa and its and law, law college. How is the man from move from Cincinnati, Ohio, coming in here in Muscatine, do all this stuff? Where is he getting his courage from? Where is he learning these things from? In the late 1870s, an official biography was published that, that he surely signed off on. I don't know what part he had in writing it or telling the story to the biographer, but it makes much of the fact this so-called Irish grandfather. Mm. And this was in a time when... Uh, Science was infatuated with the idea of racial characteristics and intelligence characteristics and so on. That biography makes much of the fact that he had an Irish grandfather and that that must be why he was so he smart. Was smart the way he was. And, uh, and on the other side, that his, uh, that his mother's line was full, or maybe it was even full-blooded African, mm. which apparently gave him some kind of physical prowess Hmm. (laughs) we can laugh but uh in the future though they'll be laughing at some of our notions too and then he got he got involved in purchasing real estate we don't know a lot about that somebody could go back through the land records and actually find these transactions but a number of properties 
There was a time around the time of the Civil War, 1860 census, the black population in Iowa was larger than anywhere else. It had been larger in Dubuque before, and, and this distinction didn't last long. It uh, moved to places like Keokuk, uh, the Quad Cities, Waterloo, Des Moines. Many black men came to Iowa as what would be called strike breakers. The labor movement is getting organized, and white coal miners, for example, or railroad workers, are refusing to work for the wages and conditions they were getting. And the companies respond by bringing in black men who, who get their start. But there was a substantial African-American population here, and Alexander obviously was a community leader, and surely some of these real estate transactions. These days you might be co-signing a loan. In those days it might have been, uh, well, okay, I'll help you buy this thing and pay me as you can. 1863, he organized black soldiers from Iowa and Missouri. Is that correct? He did. Alexander Clark was one of those who was lobbying for black men to be able to join the army. Mm-hmm. You may say, some, some will say, well, the war was about, it was the war of the rebellion. The seceding states of the South needed to be brought back into the Union. The Union needed to be saved, and that's why men went to war. There were also plenty of people who said from the start, the institution of slavery has to go, and that's going to be one of the outcomes of this war. Certainly in the community, in the circles where Alexander Clark traveled, that was always the talk. Mm. They wanted black men to be able to join the war effort, not only as servants, drivers and baggage handlers and all that. So Alexander Clark was one of those who was lobbying the governor of Iowa and uh, other influential people he knew, legislators from Muscatine and so on for black men to be able to serve. And and remember, we're talking about state militias here. We're talking about governors raising regiments. Mm. Community leaders saying, "Oh yeah, I think I'd like to, I'd I'd like to be a colonel." So, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. As soon as black troops were authorized, Alexander Clark was there to say, "Yeah, we want a regiment for Iowa." And was authorized to start recruiting for that. The first, they called it the First Iowa Infantry. Sometimes it, the name had colored in parenthesis, or yeah. there was a formal name, the First Iowa Infantry of African Descent. Yeah. Later on, when these men were in service and uh, some regiments were reorganized, they were put together with others and became the 60th USCT, which was U.S. Colored Troops. So at the end of the war, and if, if you look up the uh, regimental rosters and histories, you will find the 60th USCT was men from Iowa, largely men from Iowa and Missouri. But in fact, roster shows place of residence and place of nativity for as many men as they had that information on. Place of nativity is an interesting thing to see men in that regiment who had been born all over the slave states of the South. Mm. Alexander started recruit, started recruiting almost immediately when it was authorized. The Muscatine Journal reported that his barber shop on uh, Iowa Avenue in downtown Muscatine became a recruiting office for the 1st Iowa Infantry. He left his family for a couple of weeks and took a trip upriver to St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, to Fort Snelling, where there were black men who were not official soldiers, but they had been working as guards and cooks and... Um, watching, caring for Native American prisoners mm-hmm. in, in the wake of what was called an Indian uprising in Minnesota. Things were more under control by then, and Alexander obviously knew 
went to Fort Snelling and recruited a group of those men. As the recruiter, he was to get a $2 recruitment bonus, and the story is that he was a man of some means, and he gave each man, well, I guess we could call it an inducement. He, he said, hey, you know, I can get you a uniform, we get you tr- military training, put a weapon in your hands, and here's $2 to boot. Mm. Uh, they, the, the report was that they marched out of St. Paul uh, in fine form and showed that these men could be soldiers. How many soldiers did he recruit? Black soldiers. Well, how many Alexander recruited himself? I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. My recollection is that the trip to St. Paul netted him upwards of 50 men. Oh, wow. And came down on a riverboat. There weren't that many black men here at the beginning of the war. I referred to the rosters that describe place of nativity and place of residence. The place of residence was written down after the war. So a lot of these men were living all over Iowa. They came back to Iowa after the war, but they were born Alabama, Mississippi, Virginia, Tennessee. Alexander Clark, he enlisted a lot of black soldiers to fight, but he could not fight. Why was Evidently, he was disappointed. Evidently, he tried to enlist. Uh, he had some disabilities? Is that what it was? It's... I would like to find the enlistment documents, but I don't think I will. <laughs> It is reported that he had a deformity of his left ankle. Mm. In any case, when he was trying to become a member of the regiment, a doctor said he wasn't qualified. They called him Sergeant Major. And I said way earlier that this was a time when states were raising their own regiments, and there were men who said, yeah, I'd like to be a colonel. I don't know if he wanted to be a colonel, but he didn't seem to mind that everybody was calling him Sergeant Major. He was the recruiting guy. Wow. They're calling him Sergeant Major. And at the end of their service, when these guys get back, they end up down the Mississippi River at Helena, Arkansas, take part in one significant battle and, and provide other significant duty in guarding prisoners and so on. When they get back, they hold a convention. And the first thing they do, which is reported in detail, is elect Alexander Clark president of the proceedings. And they adopt resolutions. This, this is our platform. This is what we're going to lobby on, what we're going to campaign for. And he's the leader of that from there. That's his mandate to be the leader to campaign for these changes in law and so on. This man turned down an appointment from the president of the United States. President Grant appointed him as ambassador to Haiti. Well, or he offered it. As, hey, can you be ambassador to And Haiti. the response and he t- was, he turned it, it down. It doesn't pay enough. <laughs> so that that was what his, did that do for his prestige? Do you suppose? Pretty big. I think so. Barely people turned down appointment from the president. By then, he was in pretty big demand as a speaker. He was doing a lot of traveling. He Probably would, making good money too. Uh, well, evidently, he had made enough money from his investments. Uh, he stopped doing his barbering trade, as I said, in 1868. He was traveling. He was doing the Black Masonic movement. He was, do- he was doing a lot of church things. He went to a lot of church conferences. There was a big ecumenical, the, the, what is supposed to have been the world's biggest ecumenical, uh, maybe even interfaith, but for sure, Christian bodies of all sorts hmm. came together for a big ecumenical conference in London, and Alexander Clark was one of the delegates sent by the AME church. And it wasn't just a trip to London. He went as far as Switzerland. He's writing about how he enjoyed touring in the Alps, and then he, he, one of his dispatches comes from Paris. 
Another one comes from London. He talks about uh, dining at Lord So-and-So's manor house and hoping that he was going to make it to Scotland and Ireland before he came home. <laughs> That's the circles this guy was moving in. Wow. This man was quite the politician. He had widespread relationships of all sorts and didn't seem do, to have enemies. Do, do you think he's a... Uh his trade, because a lot of people had to go see him and get their hair cut. I think he got has, to, has a got, lot to do with it. Got to start there for sure. Okay. He certainly so had he, the people skills. And eventually he's going to political conventions and, uh, and evidently having a good time. Yeah. At least the public face. We don't know what it was like. You know, did he get to stay in the same hotel rooms and enjoy the same hospitality uh, privileges? Don't yeah, know. We don't know. Because I'm, I'm thinking even the neighborhood, the neighborhood that he bought a house in. Was central and was, prestigious. It was about a one-block walk to his barber shop. It was right in the center of town. 1878, his house destroyed by fire. Arson suspected, not proved. What do you think? He was in the news a lot. By then, he was traveling widely. He was making speeches. If you think about the big picture of what was happening in the country at the time, Reconstruction effectively ended 1876-77. Democrats, and, and that is once pro-slavery Southern Democrats, are coming back to power. Alexander Clark is traveling, including in Southern states. By then, he can travel as far as Louisiana. In 1876, the centennial of the nation, he's part of a delegation of black leaders who represent, as it was said, who represented his race Mm. in Philadelphia at the Centennial Exposition. The guy's in the newspapers all the time. You can imagine there were people unhappy about that. He was also in opposition newspapers. Mm. There were newspapers ridiculing him and the causes he represented. Now, a year later, he built another two-story house. His house burned, and quickly he built on the same location, evidently on the same foundation, the same footprint, a fine house of a style that was really of of an older time. It's known as Federalist style in architecture, Uh, but he built this beautiful brick house. How big was it? How many bedrooms? I'm not sure how many bedrooms he had. You should let Kent Sissel explain the house, the layout of the house, because I know that Kent may have added some partitions or changed the function of some rooms. But yeah. let's let's just say this was a grand place. When his wife died, do we know? She died just a matter of months after that house fire. I'm not sure we know or have evidence that, that the fire somehow caused it. Oh, caused the death. Yeah, but... But there was an illness. Uh, we see, I think we find newspaper report of Susan coming back to Muscatine to tend her ailing mother. So she never would have lived in the new brick house. Okay. And he didn't remarry? No. He didn't remarry, but uh, some accounts say he was popular with the ladies. I mean, that's Alexander Clark, man. It seems like education was a big deal to the Clark family. They spoke they, about it, they wrote sp- about it. Do you think even Alexander Clark himself saw the education as the way out from bondage? We know that he's on record as early as 1857 when the Muscatine Journal reports the convention, I believe they called it a convention, held at the AME Church in Muscatine. It was called a gathering of of Iowa not sure what term they used. I think colored citizens. And they adopted some resolutions at that meeting. And central to that was their demand for quality, equal education. The context is, Iowa's a new state. 
adopting new con- a new constitution. They're having a constitutional convention in Iowa City, and this meeting in Muscatine is held just ahead of the constitutional convention. They're lobbying the convention. Mm. The issue was so big there, eventually the question was put to the voters. Mm. Uh, there were two questions on the ballot, in, and I believe it was in August 1856, and later in the year for sure. The Constitutional Convention was in the spring. When the vote was taken, there were two questions on the ballot. Number one, shall we ratify this new constitution? Number two, shall we allow all these rights to black citizens? The citizens of Iowa in 1857 resoundingly voted to adopt their new constitution and resoundingly rejected equal rights for black citizens. So when we get to talking about what happened later in the 60s, in one decade— the political tide changes. Man. In 1882, purchased a Chicago conservator newspaper? Purchased or at least took a large stake in black newspaper that was a leading newspaper for the black community. Yeah. Um, 18, 1882 to 1888 or 89. He was a publisher and editor? And editor. Why do you think he did purchase the newspaper? To control the narrative? Controlling the narrative? I think... There was one narrative for Alexander Clark. He was concerned about equal rights, how the story turns out. Is Mm. the American dream coming true? How does the story come out in the end? His speeches, such as as we have them, and we do have a pretty much verbatim speech from 1876, from the centennial year, this guy was really sold on the American dream. If he may have been a little cynical about whether it was coming true, at least— he could recite the Declaration of Independence. He could praise Washington and Jefferson and black people who'd sacrificed for this cause. And so when the issue of colonization came up, which was there were the American Colonization Society back to the 1820s, was saying, oh, black people are never going to get a fair shake here. The, 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 you know, for many reasons, this, they just wouldn't be happy here. It's not yeah. their natural habitat, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so there was the whole idea in the 1840s, 50s, there was the idea of compensated emancipation, that uh, it ought to be a federal project, a national project, to pay slave owners for their property. Oh, they had a lot of investment here. You, know, they can't, yeah. you can't just expect them to give up. Otherwise, we're going to have a civil war. The, the only way short of war is to pay these people, free the slaves, and send them somewhere, send them Back to Africa, send them to Central America, send them to Texas, send them to Oklahoma, send mm-hmm. them send them somewhere. Alexander was one of those who opposed colonization and who said, we're full Americans. We, we may have got here in a different way, but the future is about all of us together. That was his message. Yeah. Well, the brother from another mother of Alexander <laughs> G. Clark, Mr. Dan G. Clark. I appreciate your time, man. Anything you want to add to this? I love your show. <laughs> hey, now, that I, now that I finally listened to it. <laughs> thank you. Man, that was Dan Clark, Muscatine, Iowa. Thank you for listening to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. Until next time, be safe. <laughs>